Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI. We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps. Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLOps Live. I'm Sabine, your host, and joined by my co-host, Stephen. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Leanne Fitzpatrick, and we'll be talking about navigating organizational barriers by doing MLOps. So, Leanne, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's lovely to be on. It's great to have you. Leanne, you are the Director of Data Science at Financial Times, which hardly needs an introduction. You have also previously held leadership roles at TalkTalk, Talk, Hello Soda, and Call Credit Information Group. But can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be Director of Data Science at FT? Yeah, sure. Well, firstly, I guess it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Actually, I have a really lovely team. And when you get to kind of managing and directing, it's all about the great people that you have underneath you, uh, creating really great products, models, capabilities. I'm really delighted that team I get to work with are absolutely fantastic, really high-performing, high-functioning uh, group of individuals who also have a really great warm spirit together. And so actually a lot of my day-to-day is really quite motivating and lovely because of the team I get to work with. Also wider than that, I get to work with a great range of stakeholders completely across the FT, who the FT is a really brilliant kind of place to work in terms of kind of a really high caliber group of individuals who really like challenging the way that we want to apply technology and product thought leadership into news media organizations. So I'm constantly kept on my toes, constantly challenged. Yeah, that's a little bit about my life, but I'm sure I'll get into it. Through Absolutely. Sounds like a party. So <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about any other MLOps stuff that you might have in your background? Yeah, sure. So I've been working in the field of what we call now MLOps or machine learning operations, probably before MLOps was <laughs> the buzzword for it or the uh, the catchphrase for it. So effectively putting data science machine learning into production since around 2014, when actually at the time it was pretty hard to figure out how we're going to put this part R or Python script and this model object into a traditional software engineering stack and all of the trials and tribulations that have happened over the number of years to get us to the place that we are now where this has its own whole own remit. Machine learning operations isn't just about the technology, but also the process and the practice and the people that goes into that. But yeah, back in 2014, it was very much about the, how are we going to just unlock this hurdle of actually deploying a machine learning or predictive service into a system or front-end website, whatever that might be. And that's been a real insightful journey because it's not been without its throes. It's also been a constant learning journey, right? Because at the very beginning, it was a very steep learning curve because pretty much everybody was trying to figure it out at the same time, but no one had quite sussed out what the process was going to be. And then kind of between sort of 2017 to 2020, suddenly there was this kind of manifestation of the right way to kind of do data science and production. And we've all kind of really been rewarded by that, that there are a lot of people in this space, a lot of my peers, a lot of other organizations have come together to say, hey, this is the way we should probably do this. So we're not reinventing the wheel multiple times. So 
it's been a really exciting space to be and develop my career in and and definitely much more in the engineering and infrastructure zone than I ever thought I would have been after I finished my studies and becoming a very much more of a traditional analyst let's say and having only uh, dipped a toe into things like C++ and Scala a long time ago and not having to kind of think of myself as a engineering person now I very much think a lot about software architectures and what's right for machine learning a lot of the time. Wow, sounds like an exciting journey. We'll be digging more into that in just a moment with the community questions. But before that, a little bit of housekeeping. This is an interactive Q&A. We have people here on the call with us. So if you're here and you want to ask a question of Leanne, you can just raise your hand and we'll unmute you. You can go ahead and ask. You can also type your question in the Zoom chat. We'll pick it up as soon as possible. And if you want to ask anonymously, you can just send the question to me in a direct message. Okay. So Leanne, to warm you up a little bit, could you maybe in about one minute explain to us how MLOps is an organizational problem? Right. In one minute. Comes down to operations always being three things, right? Technology, people, and process. And no matter where you're trying to apply that, that's an organizational situation. Machine learning operations most organizations want to embed some kind of decision-making capability genuinely led now by predictive or machine learning capabilities. And to have that embedded into your organization, you need some kind of MLOps process. And it needs to be able to touch all aspects that everybody can kind of pick up, understand, and really get to grips with the machine learning capability. And that's accessible no matter what your kind of technology know-how is around machine learning and its service. Very nice. That was very succinct. I didn't time myself. I don't know if that was one minute or not, but I came my <laughs> It fit very well within one minute. So good job. Okay, Stephen, I think we're ready for the questions. Awesome. I think we would start by really trying to understand your role, Leanne, at Financial Times. And more necessarily, the, the role, not just your role, of course, but the role like ML and data plays. I know we know Financial Times is like the <laughs> a journalist-based organization, but what's the under the hood? What role does ML play at FT? Yeah, so ML actually has quite a wide-ranging touch point on the FT. We'll caveat this before I get into the details by actually saying one of the things I really enjoy about working with the about at the FT is we really do think about customer research and a lot about our user experience at the very front of that, especially in the news media world. I think it's very easy to kind of jump on over-cycling on kind of predictive capabilities where you might end up in things like echo chambers or things that aren't quite right for your users or the customers that you're building capabilities for, whether they be internal or external. And one of the things that I think I really like about the FT was we're quite cognizant and try to tune in to what is it that our users come to the FT for and how do we kind of do the light dusting of machine learning to improve that experience, but not take away why they use the Financial Times for a variety of different products and services that we offer, not just the pink newspaper that you might know as ft.com, the app, the, the print, but also things like our FT Live events, our specialist titles such as Investors Chronicle, right through to some of our B2B capabilities and our new product development. So it's kind of the right level of kind of machine learning being applied. 
I can go into some details now if you like. So some of the areas that my team focus on is what you might normally kind of think of when it comes to kind of news media space and applying data science machine learning. So that might be in personalization. So in terms of recommendations, it's also in terms of actually improving our product and our service internally. So thinking about building out internal kind of forecasts such as lifetime value modeling for our different types of users across our portfolio. And similarly, we go right into the other end of things where we've got a lot of content and trying to really understand that content definitely has a huge range of kind of NLP, natural language processing applications. So machine learning, if you will, and essentially, how do we understand what our content, our editorial journalism is actually about and how do we actually use that to encourage the right experience for our users, not just from a recommendation stance, but in terms of kind of new product development and understanding why people come to the FT. My team doesn't touch on anything in terms of the front page journalism. So in terms of we do actually have a separate data journalism and visualization team who do a brilliant job within editorial. And so shout out to Martin Starber and his team over there who help build all the data visualizations that you may know and love if you come to the FT as a regular reader. That's not my team. My team touches pretty much on everything else behind the hood of which I've talked on. So improving the customer experience, improving our product and improving our new product development as well. All right. So maybe I'm jumping into the action real quick, but I just want to know how is the team applying? If Is the team applying generative AI under the hood too? Good question. So actually not at the moment. Um, so I know obviously generative AI is a hot topic at the moment. So the FT has actually taken a very, we take a very responsible and kind of we want to make sure we're at cutting edge in terms of the way we apply machine learning, deep learning, but we'll also take a very responsible and ethical approach. And so if you think about the applications of generative AI and say the news media space, that might be like, let's generate some articles off of a particular topic. That might be the type of thing that you do. And that's not what the FT is about. We're about our independent, impartial, greatly researched news and journalism. And so in terms of the, where we're applying types more kind of advanced capabilities is really in that understanding our content top of the space. So as we'll probably anybody in the machine learning field that's listening in is aware that kind of the text vectorization and text embeddings has really, really come on a long way. And so we have a lot of our own capabilities baked in to really understand the nuance of our context within um, that. And so off the back of that, if we wish to kind of look into the large language model space and kind of generative AI, that's something we could do. But it goes back to that. With great power comes a great responsibility, I always think. And so you have to be really sensitive to what you want to do. And also the human accountability loop. And I think we're all 2023 is going to be a really interesting year for us all figuring that out. And so the FT is definitely on that journey too. And therefore playing with caution in that space at the moment. Awesome. That's quite interesting. I'm sort of looking forward to what the team does on that regard. So is there like a research department that's quite separate that does like the ML research or it's mostly just in one thing? Yeah, so we did use something called FT Labs. And then as the organization has grown, changed, we now have within our professional remit, 
a much more kind of a new product development arm. And so that couples in like things around content analytics. And we work really closely with that team. So we actually develop a lot of the machine learning capabilities side by side with them. My team is kind of the, whilst we uh, try and make sure that a lot of our use cases have a really commercial, we are really a commercial data science team. We are also doing a lot of the research parts of our data science. So we don't have a necessarily dedicated research team within product tech, which is where we sit within the FT, but that's certainly part of our remit, as well as some of the other teams who are doing their own research. And I'm sure we at some point get onto a buy versus build conversation because they always happen. But in terms of empowering other teams to use machine learning capabilities, we kind of try to direct those teams so that we're not just here to create things, but also here to advise. Right, that's an interesting point. And sort of building on top of the point you talked about, because earlier on you started by saying MLOps is people, it's the operation side, which is the people, technology, and the process. So let's talk about the people. At FT, you've spoken briefly about this, but how is a data team organized? Is there like a separate data engineering team and then an ML team that does production workload or how is it organized there? Yeah, so if we go bird's eye view, actually the the way that the data teams are structured, so we have our data and analytics capability, which houses all of our things like BI, so business information, and our insights analytics, our analytical business impact team, data strategy and governance, and then data science. And then also coupled alongside that, we have underneath kind of the technology, we have ARM called FT Core, which houses a lot about what you might think of traditional kind of data platform platform data warehousing capabilities within our data platform team. And we have a super strong relationship with those. And we also have within core other parts that touch on the data worlds, search and recommendations, as well as content and metadata, which is all around kind of the content and metadata of the FT content. So those organizations work really, really closely together. And therefore, what that means is that we have a whole, especially in data platform, we have a whole host of dedicated kind of data engineers engineering and data pipelining, data infrastructure, whose kind of role and responsibility um, is not only to keep all the lights on when it comes to our data pipelines, but actually to do a lot of like abstracting our data away so that it can be used really effectively in downstream applications, whether that be in some reporting cycle, a piece of insight, or right through into a machine learning model within production. So we have this really great data layer and it's really well supported, maintained and our foundations are, we're really lucky at the FT in terms of how we've invested in those data foundations and it makes my world in data science even more exciting because we don't kind of have to go in thinking how are we going to abstract away and kind of do lots of data engineering just to get to the kind of the core source of truth in terms of our data. Actually, a lot of our data is ready there to lift and shift straight into say a feature store straight into a machine learning capability. Then our machine learning, so my within data science, we have a number of data scientists. And then we also have machine learning engineers who are working on our kind of machine learning operation strategy as we move from a more batch deployment process to a more low latency near real time for certain applications. So not everything needs low latency, not everything needs near real-time deployment, but where we want to say being able to deploy something to the homepage that has some kind of machine learning capability, we need a more robust process around that. So we're on this journey at the moment. And those machine learning engineers sit within data platform, but are fully embedded with us in data science. Yeah, maybe I missed that. Are there particular ML platform teams 
or yeah so it sits within data science essentially yeah so and we so we built our data i guess our data science platform we use mainly posit connect if anybody is familiar with the r studio and then they obviously change to posit so we deploy all through posit connect any jobs models and models as services as apis through that and we're currently undergoing going from a google transition to an aws transition to be more aligned with our technology stack so lots going on but yeah so essentially, I'm responsible for the architecture of our data science platform and our deployment platform, which is really exciting, but also lots of responsibility to make sure that that's aligned to our overall FT technology stack. And we don't have to hire lots more people to operationally support that. What we want to do is kind of lean into a lot of the technology capabilities we already have in the FT to kind of make sure that we're optimizing for success and kind of not just uh, reinventing the wheel in data science by creating a whole new engineering team. Yeah, and we're going to be discussing a lot more about the technology Parts of things uh, uh, later on, but it's quite interesting because if anyone that sees from the outside will see that FT is not a tech company, right? It's a journalism media company. And how have you seen that working for trying to set up this organizational uh, structure in terms of like ML data? How did it be different from setting it up for a non-tech company like FT, say compared to a tech company maybe like Hello Soda or maybe tech companies you worked with in the past? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because actually, because where I sit within product and tech, a lot of people within the product and tech organization really think, well, really feel we are quite cutting edge in terms of the technology um, capabilities that we're applying. And that goes down and back to the people, right, is that we a few things. We have a very empowered workforce who we make quite big decisions about the way we want to do things with our technology stack. And that enables us to be quite at the right cutting edge, right? You don't want to be so veering into cutting edge that it's not commercially applicable to a news media organization. But also, therefore, we're in this position where I touched on our great data platform and our just lovely data layer. That's because we really invested heavily in making sure that we were creating all of the right data pipelines to capture data at the source of truth, abstract it away so it was fit for purpose to really do organizational-led decision-making. And that's all come from this sentiment of kind of, we want to leverage the right technology to really be a first-class news media organization. And so that kind of sentiment really like has come through. So whilst we might not be like a traditional, what you call a technology business, because of how we want to approach our kind of journalism and supporting the product online, we have really invested heavily into the right technology and the right people to support that and empowering people to make sure that we're on the right kind of growth trajectory as well. And if you think like the FT is one of the first newspaper organizations with a subscription model, all of that needed some of that requirement way before its time when things around kind of GDPR, et cetera, has changed that in terms of the registration process and monetization of journalism. So you can really see that kind of history play out, even though we're a very old organization. We've been around since the 1800s. Once you're in the door, it's actually surprising how yeah fresh and innovative we are to our approach. And I wouldn't say we're as extreme as say when I've worked at startups where you try everything and you like figure out what's going to stick. But we do kind of take that. We're not as conservative as say we don't want to make any any big changes. We will experiment with the right tooling and um, capabilities to see if that's going to drive the right strategy for us. Yeah. And just coming back to the enablers you talked about, that's the people, process, tech, and all of that. 
are these like three different processes, things that should be implemented like in order or they have to be implemented at the same time when you're starting to think about MLOps in your organization? Yeah, really good question. I think there's the generic one and there's the machine learning specific one. So I'm going to talk about this in the machine learning specific world. There was the tradition, right, of like when data science was really up and coming of let's just hire a data scientist and get them in and then just we're there somehow figure out what the right business problem is to work on. And then suddenly they'd be issuing us loads and loads of money and loads and loads of value. And this was kind of like a big culture that kind of became very self-propagating. And it's actually been really hard for leaders in the field to kind of break down. And I think we're getting there now over the last few years. And therefore, through that, I think by definition, we've had this just because data science, machine learning within organizations and within commercial organizations has been relatively nascent. We're in this position where you've kind of had to go people first because we've said, right, let's get these people in. And then you've suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I've left this person to figure out this huge domain of business challenges. Maybe they've not got the best kind of data set up in terms of getting extracting data out of the platform, the pipelines that would then be able to serve models in production. And then you've realized, oh my gosh, now we need to some processes so that when we hire somebody else, we can actually scale this. And then there's been the bit. Which one, though, is it the technology or is it the process? And I'm always an advocate for the process because technology can kind of be swapped in and out, right? And you kind of need to figure out the right bits to fit in. I think people like Team Microsoft Data Science Process back in 2016 did a lot to help us with what is the process around developing, deploying, maintaining data science models. And then what you've seen is the kind of technology to evolve that. At the moment, we're really in a great landscape of monitoring capabilities within MLOps. So I think within machine learning, we've really gone people, process and technology um, because technology is constantly in catch up to say, oh, actually, I remember a few years ago when I was running around at a conference saying, we're using Docker to deploy data science. And some vendor said to me, don't worry, I'll have what you've built by scrap, by hand in house in three years time ready. And I was like, we need it now. We don't need it back then. And so I think that's been where we are. But I don't know if we were to completely, we were to take a step back and say, what's the ideal? I still actually think the natural progression there is the right one. Ideally, though, you want to kind of bring all three kind of in at the same time. And with technology, right, it's always being very cognizant, let's say, or very aware of the technology you already in have in your business and how that's going to kind of align and work together and speak with each other rather than kind of just shooting for something that sounds like it's going to solve all your problems but actually only solves 10% of it because you've not really thought about your process. Yeah, that's interesting. And when we talk about barriers, especially in the people angle, it's all about building a team. That's where the barrier is and also managing a team. Right. On one hand, what are there like significant challenges you found with building data teams, whether it's in like a large company like FT or the startups you've worked with in the past? Yeah, I think actually in the machine learning space, historically, what I found is expectation mismanagement. And what I mean by that is when people are kind of fresh out of like a data science boot camp or some kind of a machine learning intensive study or graduate 
there's kind of a misalignment to actually the harsh realities of what it's like to be a commercial data scientist applying machine learning day in, day out. And so there's kind of like hope and aspiration that you're going to go into this organization and you're going to sort of, one day I'm going to be doing this image processing challenge and the next I'm going to be working with some machine learning on video. And then, but actually the reality is a lot of the time it's like, here's this really difficult business problem and we need a bit of insight, a bit of BI and probably a little bit data science to actually unpick that. And that is just maybe some kind of like forecasting model, like a lifetime value. And it's not as like maybe shiny and and crazy as as perhaps Mm, a lot of the kind of education process that we put people through however that doesn't mean that those people aren't equipped to kind of solve those problems but there's I think for a while there was kind of like a mismanagement and certainly when I was in the startup space I was really lucky because a lot of our challenges were big and very nebulous and required that kind of really creative researchy thinking But as you kind of like when you're very much more in a commercial organization, it's really thinking practically what are our biggest priorities as a big business, whether those be value drivers, cost optimization, efficiency, and then how can we apply data science to some of that machine learning? And so sometimes it's not as it was, there's still research involved. It might not be as research free thinking as perhaps we previously might have let on in terms of kind of the education part. So I think that was the biggest challenge I had for a number of years was kind of really tackling that what is it that people do day in and day out in their day job when they go into a field of machine learning and I think it's got a lot better because now people kind of the the field is quite vast as well so you can have opportunities to move around not just move up but kind of side steps to see how other organizations are applying um, different techniques and algorithms to different problem spaces you can become a real expert in the news media space or you could become a real expert in natural language processing and that could offer you very different career paths. So I think we're in a really exciting time in terms of people development now, but definitely going back to kind of building teams, I was kind of trying to manage and tailor people's expectations in terms of what they were doing day in, day out. Yeah, and you've already touched on the management parts, which I also think is crucial, of course, aside from building a team. And I think also on the management side, yeah, I know in some cases when I've worked with like talents that are remote, remotely distributed talents and so forth. I think that's always a question that even comes to us, whether in the community or MLS, is how do you manage those remote talents to be able to ensure that they deliver same value as though everyone was in person and solving crucial business problems? Yeah, it's obviously a very pressing point over the last three years since most of the world has gone hybrid. (laughs) I've been managing teams in a hybrid way since around 2017. I was off in the US a lot because we had the startup I worked at had offices over there. So I worked from there a lot and then also spent a good year and a half working over there. And I think there's a few things that have to go hand in hand, right? When you work, kind of thinking about hybrid working, the way to create inclusive spaces and safe spaces for your team to think and challenge and have opportunities to be creative is very different to kind of what that looks like in a face-to-face environment, mainly as well because like body language is so much harder, things like that. And so it's about, and also like finding that meeting time, you know, I think we're all in that challenge still of how do you struggle to, how do you play off those different meetings that you want to have that aren't necessarily reminiscent of the before COVID times (laughs) when it was done more organically face-to-face. I think what I would very much encourage is 
something I've tapped into is ensuring the kind of systematic processes that you have to ensure some of those forums. So that might be your regular data science or machine learning team meetings, where then you have kind of a forum for kind of creative thinking or showcasing work in progress and also allowing people to kind of question in a really most of us in this space are really curious so making sure that people can continue to be curious without feeling like they don't have that opportunity as well as people that maybe aren't as brave to jump in on calls I've had to get even better than I was before at being silent <laughs> I mean, I'm always exercising my listening skills but I think being silent in kind of a remote setting is a really powerful thing to ensure that kind of inclusivity so I don't think anybody's cracked it I think in the specifically kind of machine learning machine learning ops I think we have to be kind of aware of the types of people that are attracted to working in this space and kind of the neurodiverse teams that you might have as well as very diverse teams from other axioms as well and ensuring that you kind of figure out different methods whether that be kind of having asynchronous touch points over some kind of direct messaging service like slack or teams having those more regular calls having one-on-one touch point times and then also how you then connect them into the business so how do you do your communication strategy out about what you're working on it's a really big area and probably could be one for a podcast or no live Q&A all by itself. So without me waffling on and on, I don't have it cracked, but I think we constantly have to keep challenging ourselves to make sure that our teams have the opportunity to feel like their voice is heard, even in a hybrid environment. Right. So before we jump into some of the questions that we pre-submitted by community members, I think let's just touch on the process side a little bit. Could you walk us through what the ML processes like at at FT currently, from thinking about the use case to eventually delivering the use case to necessary users. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a lovely diagram for this, which I'll just talk through and hopefully you can kind of visualize it as I talk through it. Everything obviously starts with that kind of problem space, as you've touched on, so researching the problem space. And that's a very collaborative thing that we do with our stakeholders. So actually identifying the business problem is something that is a push-pull mechanism within our business. So we have a variety of stakeholders across the FT, from our business to customer department, business to business, um, our kind of FT.com and apps team, our FT Live. So we have a variety of different people that we work with, and they might identify a particular challenge and it might be prime for a kind of data science or machine learning um, solution. And so we'll go through that scoping exercise. And then we start to kind of, we very much like most data science teams uh, or working commercial organizations, it's much about how ready is this project to actually take on? So do we actually collect the data that we need or do we need to go through that process and then do some analysis before we even get to kind of more of machine learning modeling stage, understanding actually how is that going to be, what's actually going to be, how is that model going to be used organizationally, operationally? Is it going to be consumed, for example, through some kind of push notification in the app or is it going to be available as some kind of customer experience on the website like how is this or is it tailoring for some marketing communication how's that actually going to be embedded and then that's where we can then scoping out a bit of like a minimal viable product solution for the data science capability that might support that and we go through that journey where we kind of collect a lot of data we're on the journey at the moment where we're building out more robust feature store because like I said we have this great data layer but now we want more readily 
availables in both readily available features, not just in an offline feature store, but also in an online feature store to constantly serve some of these models. So we'll go through that kind of exploratory data analysis, developing some of those features, and then actually onto the model creation process itself, then validating, and then our maintenance pipelines. And so what I might do is actually touch on kind of actually some of the capabilities that we have in-house shortly about that supports all of this. But yeah, back into kind of once validated model, then uh, actually serving it to our stakeholders and validating not just that it hits kind of some of the business success metrics, which were kind of were defined up front, but also then how we're going to kind of maintain that because we constantly work on newer products in data science, but how do we maintain some of those other services that we have supporting in production as well? Would it be useful for me to chat a little bit about our technology stack that kind of sits behind some of that? Oh, yeah. Okay, let's talk about that because I know we have some questions on the technology stack as well, but let's just talk about it to get a, an overview, say. Yeah, I would deep dive into kind of the machine learning operations stack. So we're actually on, a, as I said, a journey to transition. So to historically, a lot of our models were actually built in a batch uh, deployment manner. So we were uh, traditionally an R programming language team, and we're on our journey to becoming both R and Python, because Python is particularly useful in certain applications, particularly the natural language processing space, which we're doing a lot more. And we were only ever deploying kind of low latency solutions rarely so they were in a much more kind of an ad hoc way and therefore every time we built them we were doing it differently like one day it would be an AWS Lambda one another day it would be something different so we're on this journey to kind of make sure that everything is kind of reproducible in terms of that stack and so the way we currently are doing this is that every model will be deployed and is deployed that we'll create this year as API and that will be hosted through a Posit Connect instance that we've actually got hosted on a scalable Kubernetes AWS cluster. So data scientists don't have to worry that once they put their model out there and then it gets in lots of requests, the scaling is taken care of and uh, our operations team will kindly monitor that in case anything goes wrong in terms of too many requests at one time. In terms of our monitoring, currently we have a bit of a, a job schedule approach, which is much more like a batch approach to saying what are the key stats we want to monitor about this model. And every day that runs to see if any kind of major concept or data drifts happened. We're also overhauling that at the moment because that's a very uh, manual process. Each model that we've deployed has its own custom way of doing its monitoring. And so what we want to do is have kind of hit list of the key things we want to monitor on every single model that we have in production. So that's another journey for us. And how we kind of deploy that is still open in the air, but kind of we've already settled on We'll be using a lot of the capabilities we have from a monitoring on our infrastructure out of the box, where we use Prometheus for kind of data log capture, along with Grafana for visualization. It's likely that we're touching on some of that as well with our monitoring approach. Whereas right now, our monitoring is actually just some nice R scripts that are scheduled every day to monitor every single model we have live. That talks a little bit about the machine learning operations stack from a tech perspective. Yeah, I think that's pretty useful because we decide to deep dive into these technologies. So that has to be another episode on it. So the, thank you for sharing that. So we're just going to jump right into some of the questions that were sort of pre-submitted by the by community members. And I'm just going to link this particular question to one you talked about earlier. And this person asks, are there specific MLOps components that help 
navigates organizational barriers when implemented earlier than others. You talked about feature stores, but do you think implementing a feature store like off the back is more valuable than thinking about experiment tracking or model seven? Yeah, so I think the components that you prioritize really need to be led by the business and the services that you're trying to address are and then how much kind of organizational alignment you have to actually what you're trying to achieve is because for example the ft we have a number of people who are really bought in and really understand what the machine learning operations piece is about and a number of people who that is just a buzzword to them and they don't really understand that and so there's sometimes prioritizing those components. It comes at a selfish angle of, okay, what do we need to be able to do to be able to get this into production? So for example, actually when I joined the FT, data science at the FT didn't really have a challenge getting data science models into production because the way that we traditionally had done it was that we would build a model and output data into our data layer and then that data layer would be picked up by different parts of the business. So that wasn't really necessarily the challenge. The challenge though was that data layer was a batch data layer and so getting that real-time capability was one of the areas where we were data science was often overlooked because it was like oh we could go to data science for this but they've told us that they can't serve this in a low latency way. So that's one of the major things that we focused on and pivoted was if we want to be able to serve, say, a low latency recommendation when somebody lands on the site, how do we actually unpick that from our current pipeline? And that comes into this kind of models as a service journey that we're on. That then ties in, you can hear very nicely to that stakeholder conversation, right? And kind of pitching into those stakeholders to say, you don't really need to understand under the hood what this component is about, but what it's going to unlock is this value for you to realize this capability that you've been after, which is a recommendation to be served to somebody as they land on the site using information during that session. That's a very, and then they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Why is it going to take us three months to build that? Oh, because we need this engineering resource to be aligned. We need to invest a little bit more heavily in this license to make sure that we've got the right tooling for purpose. And we also need to upskill our data scientists. Oh, okay, now I'm kind of getting it. But why is it still taking so long? Well, because we're on this journey. And so you can kind of shape that stakeholder conversation alongside the right component that you need to be able to plug in. Because if you think about the ML and the machine learning operations, like toolkit stack in terms of the different parts. So you've obviously got your like deployment pipelines, your model catalog, your model monitoring, pipe processing, you've got your feature store and kind of exploratory data analysis, all of those. For me, when I write put key focus areas, I'm like, all of it's a key focus area, but it physically can't be, right? So whilst we're working on a feature store at the moment, that's because we want to be able to serve some of those features in that online instance. Actually, a lot of our data in batch is still in a really high quality system. So it's about addressing some of the consistency challenges that we have, not necessarily reinventing the world and creating a new data layer. So it's really identifying what's my biggest gap in my business at the moment to serving machine learning at scale within my organization and what's going to resonate the most with the stakeholders that actually want machine learning in their parts of the organization and kind of hopefully trying to build a bit of a story around that to bring those together. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that was really insightful even beyond like the question asked there. I think the, the provider sounded a soundbite as well. 
Anyways, let's jump right into the next question. And this person asks, what are some organizational patterns you've seen for building successful MLOps teams? In like in terms of setup, structure and operations? Yeah, again, I hate to be the, to go back to the default answer of like, it depends on your organization and what scale you're trying to do this, right? So in some organizations, it might be that you're only trying to apply machine learning in a very niche part of the organization in a particular app or a particular user journey. For us, it's a lot more, it's a wider scale. So whilst in the history of the team has come from very sliced and diced parts of applying machine learning to different parts of the FT products and services, we're now becoming a little bit more pan organization and pan product, and therefore our capability needs to move alongside that. So I think it's being very, taking the time to really lean into the business that you're in and being very watchful to say, what is it that we actually need? And then in terms of actually then building those, it depends how much kind of buy-in you've got from your business about what you're trying to do, right? In some organizations, it might be, yep, we can completely understand what machine learning is about. And we really understand why there's an operational aspect to that because that needs to be properly supported to actually have the deployment processes and maintenance in place. In some organizations, that's going to be an education piece. And therefore, with that education piece, you really want to start small. So you really want to be able to just showcase a very high value machine learning model that maybe was really exciting and really aligned to the business strategy. So for example, for us recently, that was, we've always had article vectorization models, but historically we had different ones all over the business. And actually we went on a journey to kind of condense all of those into one vectorization for across pan FT articles. And that's got a lot of like various different business stakeholder traction and really excitement. And now I'm kind of can be on the journey to say, well, now we've got this one place for all of this rather than multiple entities across different models doing different things. We actually need to be conscious that this might have a lot of load and it might get lots and lots of queries. The API itself might get lots and lots of calls. So we need to have the right investment to support that model. And so that's where you can then bring that business on that journey to say, oh, could we invest in some infrastructure people resource and DevOps? And can we also get some engineering investment in this? Um, Because then you can say, if this goes down, this is kind of the cost impact if this model isn't running. So being able to sort of have a very showcase machine learning MVP or where you've deployed something in practice that's really like loved and well-regarded by stakeholders. And you kind of said, not a lights off moment, but if it was to break, what would happen? That can be a good hook into then building um, the right components, people around that to support it. Great, great. Thanks for sharing that, Leanne. And another question from the community. This person asked, one organizational barrier to navigate is the decision between building and buying. How do you navigate that decision process? Yeah, I think it goes down to what's the core of your business about, right? So the FT, the core of our business is our fantastic news journalism, our our great editorial teams, our great content that we put out there, whether those be live events or podcasts, right through to kind of the traditional print paper. And so... Everything around that is what's kind of supporting that product to be available to users, whoever they may be. And so when you think about that through that lens, it kind of then starts to help you have that conversation about where do I buy versus where do I build? So 
I'm not in the interest of building a machine learning operation stack completely from scratch. I think I'm going to be better off buying in certain capabilities. And I'm not going to talk about kind of all the different vendors, but there's lots of vendors out there. And then it's kind of figuring out which ones kind of align best to your kind of current technology, which one's aligning if you're on-prem versus cloud, multi-cloud, which ones support you best in terms of the data sources that you ingest from and the databases that you ingest from. So there's that process to go on. In terms of then kind of thinking about it from sort of third-party different machine learning services that can also be given, there's a conversation, you know, obviously it's all very hot topic right now that especially OpenAI now that they've changed some of the licensing. So, you know, anything put on there won't be available in the public domain. It's a big hot topic for people to think, how are we going to embed OpenAI and ChatGPT into some of our services and systems? It might not be the right thing for you in your organization to go off and build your own large language model to replicate kind of ChatGPT within your own business. So you might make that decision and go through that, what that means for you from a legal, human and ethical standpoint. So I think it's figuring out where, what is it that I'm after doing, but what's also is my business about, and then also the cost thing, right? So, because sometimes it actually is cheaper to buy, and then sometimes it's actually much better to build in-house. So when it comes to our machine learning operation stack, we're actually doing a bit of both because we've actually got a lot of our, the way that we've done our data warehousing, our data platform is a lot using the open source market. And so we have a lot of our own systems and capabilities built upon an AWS cloud stack that we maintain and support. And so data science are leaning into some of that. Right, yeah, thanks. And the follow-up question, this person asked, how can you estimate if a tool that you build or buy or maybe buy will become an organizational burden? Oh, I think you can think how much it's going to take to support that, right? Because that's sometimes the decision to do the build yourself is because if you see a tool and it's really left field to your whole current um, like stack on the way of doing things and your processes, and it doesn't really fit in nicely, there's going to probably be a piece of a lot of burden there for people to be involved, kind of supporting and just actually doing the tooling. And it's one of the things that's most often overlooked, actually, in a lot of organizations I've worked with, is that, you know, you think you can just buy in this tool off the shelf and that it's just going to suddenly self Now, there's firstly the like, there's the embedding like curve, right, which is just like loads of resource needing, whether that be people or the technology itself embedding onto getting that set up. And then there's the maintenance curve. Do you know that that's going to be the case whether you go buy versus build? And then I think what you've got that trade off with kind of buying is how well does this fit with the rest of my stack? And if it starts to actually become something that I'm not only just paying the vendor for, but I'm also paying a whole team who could have potentially built this themselves and found it easier to maintain their own thing, that's then a conversation to have. I don't know actually about figuring out how do you estimate that. That seems like a great predict opportunity for a predictive model if we could get enough organizations to come together and tell us <laughs> how well their bill versus buy decisions have gone and what factors right. did they use to determine whether or not they should build versus buy and then how much of a burden has it been. I don't, I off the top of my head, I can't really think what are the, I think it really goes back to 
do you already have a number of like you've got to be thinking about what's the service license agreement of this product and what it's serving like is it serving something on the ft say like that to do with the home page that has to have a really really high quality service and therefore how much maintenance cost is that going to require i think there's a few other things that you can consider which is like how up to speed are the people in your organization already with something that's similar to that and how the world does that fit in with the rest of your existing stack because eventually where you want to get to is you can kind of swap in bits and pieces that's relatively a low effort i think it's always an ideal yeah 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 thanks so let's jump right into another company's question doesn't ask how do you get the data scientists and the rest of the team to speak the same language and share the same incentives oh that's a really good question i love that so I think starting at like the business strategy, right, getting people bought into it, actually, what is it that the organization is here to deliver? And what does that mean for you in kind of the more micro sense in terms of what you're delivering within data science? And so kind of being really active in terms of working with stakeholders across the business, you know, having opportunities to engage with them in more informal ways, such as having them come along. We frequently have our stakeholders come every other week from across the business to give us a kind of a showcase or show and tell about what they're up to and the opportunity for kind of data science to deep dive into that with very machine learning esque type questions normally. And so being able to kind of speak that common business language by just exposure to stakeholders is kind of really, really critical. And then within the team, I think there's a lot to be said about being really clear and sensitive with our language. I think a lot can be lost. I have a real bad habit of using words in a where I think mean a certain thing, but mean something completely different, even within my own team. And I think we see that across different data science data scientists, different data science organizations. And I think being really explicit about by this, I mean this and feeling like that's okay to say that it's not patronizing. And then also being really effective and active in terms of educational workshops, giving people time to kind of upskill, use kind of 10% development time, and then sharing, having forum to share that so that you're kind of on the same page in terms of the lingo and the languages that you're like language around machine learning that you're using. I think it's definitely comes back to that age old saying of like, I think it's like, say something three times, say something four times, say something five (laughs) times. And then people kind of, there's definitely a lot to be said in that. And I definitely feel like MLOps is one of those words that's definitely very loaded. I think it means many different things in many different organizations, but I think we're getting back to that It really means the processes, the tooling, the people that serve machine learning, right? I think that's a really good example of where we've kind of gone 360 from, I think people came up with that word and similar to the DevOps word journey that that went on about what Mm -hmm. does this actually mean? Is DevOps a culture or is it a field? Like, what is it, right? I think there's that education path with anything that's new. And I think just encouraging active conversation and not shooting people down for being inquisitive or perhaps saying something that you might think is wrong, because actually it's not wrong. It's just based on their context, the culture they're coming from, the information they have. So I think, yeah, language is a really interesting one. And I would say as well, working at the FT, the FT has its own FT language, which I'm still trying okay. to learn and get my head around, <laughs> even after a couple of years of working there. So Right. 
Yeah, and this aspect of people trying to contribute and then not, like, giving them the freedom to contribute, right? It ties back to this organizational politics. And I think it's crucial, even if it's not something we've discussed over the past well, 15 minutes of this episode. I think it's crucial you really think about that. Your experience, what are some of the organizational politics you've had to navigate to before you had to deliver like ML solutions? And what would be your advice for managers in like with organizational politics? Yeah, do you know what? I would say that firstly, politics is a bit of a, I feel like it's, again, it's a loaded word for it, right? Where you hear the word politics and you instantly like associate it with like, sometimes I have to use the word admin because I just think maybe, <laughs> but it doesn't right. make it sound any better to me. And it's not admin because actually what it is, is it's building really good peer relationships. That's actually what it comes down to, right? Is that part of your responsibility as a leader and as an effective leader is really going out there, putting yourself out there and being a representative of your organization and championing that part of the organization to really showcase what value you can deliver and therefore the value you can deliver also the things you need to help deliver that value and that kind of that symbiotic relationship that you want to build with your business and your peers so yeah some people kind of hear that and think oh my gosh what a game of chess that must be and therefore we get into that politics word but I think certainly for me it's somewhere like the FT I've actually I've really enjoyed the peerage and the network that I have within the organization it's such a lovely group of people people to work with. We're under a lot of challenges to be able to deliver. I'm sorry, I'm realizing we've got like only a couple of minutes left. So I'll quickly wrap up. I feel really empowered to work with my peers to come up with the right strategies. Other organizations where it's been more difficult, where people have been under more pressures, let's different types of pressures, let's say, and that's uh, meant that they kind of are much more guarded. I think right. it's about really investing in those relationships to go for lunch, right? Really understand that person isn't just the person that's the, you know, the director of data engineering or whatever they may be. They're, you know, a person with a home life outside of work. Yeah. And so really understand mm-hmm. who they are, I think it goes a long way. Yeah, invest in relationships. So we're almost out of time. But I would just love if you could leave us with like some best practices based off this question from the community. And this person asked, what are some quick changes you can suggest stakeholders make to organizational setups that can help them navigate the barriers of building successful data and ML teams? Bring data and analytics as a voice into their conversations. So making sure that there's like, bring along somebody within your analytics or data organization to any kind of new product or scoping conversation, whether or not you think it's got data involved in or not. And hopefully that's something that can be a fairly lightweight resource, maybe you can distribute it across the analytics team. And I think as well, yeah, I think that would be the quick change I would do because I think everything else probably is more than a one minute answer. But getting data into the, some of those key conversations early on will really help make a difference. Awesome. Thanks, Leon. It's been pretty great catching up. Thank you so much for having me. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on to share your unique perspective, Leanne. It was a pleasure. Before we wrap up here, can you tell us a little bit how people can maybe follow you online, what you're doing, connect with you? Yeah, sure. So please feel free to connect with me over on LinkedIn, uh, Leanne Kim Fitzpatrick. I think I'm the only one, (laughs) (laughs) Director of Data Science. And you can also follow me on Twitter at uh, L underscore K under ooh, LK underscore Fitzpatrick. That's it. At LK underscore Fitzpatrick. And I'm also on the MLOps community Slack channels. So you can feel free to drop me a Slack message there anytime. Awesome. We'll be back in two weeks. 
And this time, it will be the last time that we do the podcast in this format, actually. So we're changing things around a little bit after that. But yeah, in two weeks, we'll be back with Martin Tushinsky, and we'll be talking about tackling MLOps challenges in computer vision. So in the meantime, we'll see you on socials and in the MLOps community Slack that Leanne just mentioned. So until next time, take care. Yeah, bye everyone. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events. And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Yeah.